like, wow, the bicycle is like this unbelievable tool that is like such a positive influence on the world. And it's one of the only machines and one of our only inventions that you could actually say is like very hard to find negatives. Like it is positive and helps people's lives no matter how they use it around the world. The, the scroll is endless and something that is like such an amazing piece of content will just will just be gone and the next day there's something new. Um, I think one of the things that like is the difference between people that might have a career in something and might not is is just sticking with it. Like if I look back at my career, I'm like, I don't know if I really did anything that special it's i just kept doing the same thing for years and years and years and eventually you're like okay this is a career now um. hey everyone i'm chris hall and this is the downtime podcast where we're going to be taking you deeper than ever into the gravity-based side of mountain biking this week's episode is supported by seven mesh Seven Mesh is based in the mountains of British Columbia and was founded by three of the team from high-end outdoor clothing brand Arcteryx. As you'd expect from that combo of challenging terrain, extremely varied weather and incredible skills and experience in the outdoor clothing world, Seven Mesh are making truly high-performance clothing for mountain biking, gravel and road riding. They're working super hard to give us new options and better solutions to meet our needs, which is designed to last the test of time and not just the next season. Needless to say, the performance is next level, but their gear is built to last in the harshest of conditions and to keep you comfortable for as long as you're prepared to go. Seven Mesh are always looking forwards and have just launched their brand new AirMap collection. AirMap uses a unique approach of different map layers that uses incoming air to expel warm, moist air out of the garment, while blocking air and water in places where you need it. This allows them to individually tune the product's performance to the specific requirements of each area of the garment, and believe me, you can feel that when you're wearing it. The entire range is also free from PFAS and PFCs, known as the Forever Chemicals. Head to their website now to find out more about the AirMap range. Alongside AirMap, they've got lots of other incredible products that will improve your comfort whatever the weather. I'd highly recommend checking out their Chilco Anorak, which was by far my most worn piece of mountain bike clothing last autumn, winter and spring, both on and off the bike. You can see the entire range at 7mesh.com. Whether you want to try 7mesh for the first time or you're already hooked, they're offering downtime listeners a very generous 20% discount using the code 7MeshXDowntime20. That's the number 7 followed by MeshXDowntime, then the number 20, all lowercase with no spaces. That's 7MeshXDowntime20 over at 7mesh.com. Head over now and check them out, and what's even better is that they ship globally. So wherever you are, you can get your hands on some top quality riding gear. That code will run until the end of January 2024. All right, just a few more quick things before we get stuck into this week's episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can either set up a regular donation via my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast, or grab yourself some merch from downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop, or just share the episode with your friends or on your social media and spread the word. I really appreciate everyone who supports what I do. It really makes a massive difference. So thank you for your help. Also, don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting that button in your podcast app right now, or there's buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can either listen to today's episode right here, or if you prefer to watch it, you can now do that over on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at downtimepodcast. I'll also pop a link to the video in the show notes over on my website, downtimepodcast.com, along with all the other links that I've talked about in this intro. 
All right, today I'm chatting to Darcy Wittenberg, owner, director and producer at the awesome Ant Hill Films. We hear how Darcy got into filmmaking and how things have progressed from the collective through to Ant Hill Films being born. Hear how some of their incredible scenes were made and what it was like to be responsible for telling Stevie Smith's story. We also get some insight on their incredible new film, The Engine Inside, talk about the current state of mountain bike filmmaking and plenty more. At the time of this interview, the distribution of the film wasn't fully locked in. I spoke to the team at Ant Hill this week and I'm told they should know the details within the next week or so. So hopefully I'll have that information for you soon and I can share it in the intro for next week's podcast episode. All right, it's time to delve into the world of Ant Hill Films. So without further ado, here's Darcy Wittenberg. Darcy Wittenberg, welcome to the Downtime oh. Podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, we're obviously going to talk uh, a lot about Ant Hill Films, find out all about that. But let's just find out a little bit about yourself first. Just give us some background. Where did you grow up and how did you get into mountain biking in the first place? Yeah, I grew up in uh, North Delta, which is uh, kind of a small town on the edge of Vancouver in British Columbia. And we had forests all around us growing up. So um, I just got into to riding bikes on the trails. At first, it was just with a BMX and like taking my BMX out onto the trails and not even really knowing what mountain biking was. That would have been in kind of the mid 80s. So um, mountain biking was just becoming a thing. And I remember my parents got me my first like actual mountain bike for my birthday. And I think that was the first time I like clued in that like this was like a thing that other people are doing. And and there was actually like a name for it. Awesome. And, and he had a perfect spot to get into that sport. Was was racing part of your life or were you just someone that enjoyed being on bikes in the woods? Yeah, I never got into racing um, at a young age. Um, I was actually a competitive gymnast um, my whole childhood until I was 18. So um, I was on the Canadian national team for a number of years and that pretty much consumed my life when I was younger. So, um, so beyond that, I didn't really have much like time or like more interest in racing. <clears throat> so for me, mountain biking, like was always an escape was always about exploration. Um, and then when I was, when I was 19, I, I moved up to Whistler, um, and in those days, it was, the bike park hadn't formed yet. Um, and there was just so many trails, so many like logging roads and places to explore. So um, for me, mountain biking was always really about that, that exploration. Amazing. I didn't realize the, uh, the gymnastics background was there. What, what brought an end to that? What <laughs> changed around 18, 19 and took you to Whistler? Uh, well, it was just just graduating from high school. And then um, when you're competing at that level, you're training close to 40 hours a week in the gym. So you're just constantly inside. Um, and I did grow up, you know, with uh, parents who were really into the outdoors. And so I've always had that interest and kind of got to that age where I could make my own choices you know you're turning 18 the whole world is opening up and you're kind of thinking do i do i still want to be like cooped up in a in a gym when there's a big wide world to explore so um so yeah i actually just before moving to worcester i went and spent uh 
seven months in Switzerland because um, I actually have Swiss heritage and a Swiss passport. So um, my uncle uh, owned a uh, Berg house um, up near Davos in the Alpines. So uh, after spending a summer there and just like biking insane single track all over <laughs> the Alps, um, yeah, when I was when I was done with that, I was I was ready to kind of move up to a mountain town, and obviously Whistler's right there, so uh, that's what happened. Nice. So obviously a lot of riding while you were there. But what were you doing from a work perspective when you were in Whistler? Uh, well, when I was there, I, my first job was at Starbucks. Um, <laughs> I worked there for a couple of years uh as a barista <clears throat> which is a pretty good job because you the schedule was always all over the place so in the winter i could go snowboarding a lot um working in the evenings and stuff so uh yeah i mean i worked at the dublin gate pub for a number of years painted houses uh you kind of do a bit of everything in whistler you know you're always bouncing around doing different jobs so um i did that for a number of years and I had an interest in photography um, at the time as well. And then I just, through snowboarding, actually met some friends that were um, making snowboarding films and they needed an extra hand, like someone to just grab an extra angle and and film. And it was all pretty slack back in the day. It was all really low-key, low-budget stuff, right? And um, But that's that's kind of what like got me into filming. And then in um, the in 1999, uh, Yearly Ricker was making the film Ride to the Hills, mm-hmm. um, and I already had already helped him on some snowboarding stuff. So um, he kind of brought me on to more shoots. And then the first like film trip I ever went on was for that film. We went down to Utah, um, and we had uh, Shandros, Dave Watson. Cody Swansboro and Jordy Lunn. Uh, and yeah, I think that was it. And that was kind of the first ever film trip I went on. So um, yeah, and then from there, things just kind of slowly snowballed. Yeah, um, that's a pretty, after that, pretty cool place to start. Yeah. Yeah, so- yeah, I was really lucky. Like just, I mean, that's a, the thing with living in Whistler is, you know, there's, there's people that are you know, um, very deeply into all the sports that exist up there. So um, I guess it wasn't that hard to meet people that were making films. Yeah, impressive. And you went then from kind of odd job in doing bits and pieces on various different films to becoming like full time within the film world. Was it Crank 5, the first film that you kind of moved into working full time with? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Cranked Five was the movie that uh, there was kind of a pretty tight shooting schedule um, that summer. It would have been the summer of 2002. And it did get to the point where I couldn't balance my my job at the Dublin Gate anymore and, and painting houses. I was kind of doing both. And um, yeah, that was kind of the moment to step off the ledge and at least for the summer and, and just work on that film. Um, and so I ended up shooting quite a bit <clears throat> for that film. And in the winters I was, um, working on snowboarding films 
And then it was the this kind of spring of 2003, which was, I would say, the real pivotal moment for me. Um, when Bjorn Enga, who was making the Crank series, he we were talking about what he was going to do that year, and he said he wanted to take a break and take a year off. Um, and it kind of left this void um, in in the film space. And I had a lot of relationships with a lot of the riders um, that we had been working with at that point. And everyone kind of had this like desire to do something. Um, and so that's where the idea like slowly started to form to, to do just to make a, a movie and pitch sponsorship. And, and that's what kind of started the collective. Yeah. And you had a pretty unique approach to funding that first movie, didn't you? Was it right that you kind of got the riders to chip in some upfront to help get things moving? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We kind of got the idea from uh, a snowboarding film, Robot Food. They had done something similar. Um, and the, the cool thing about what they did, because the riders were like actively involved in funding the film, it gave it a, like a lot of street credibility right out of the gates. Because um, everyone was kind of talking about how there was this like rider funded film. Um and we did like legitimately need some money to get the film off the ground because we had nothing and no sponsorship yet. Um, so yeah, so we had um, five of the riders <coughs> that were involved in the film um, basically put up the the first bit of money that we needed to get to get the film off the ground. Um, and when we went down to see or uh, to Interbike that year. To pitch the film, it was actually a huge help because, you know, we went around to the different sponsor booths and kind of pitched the film and tried to get it going. And um, <clears throat> I really noticed that once people heard the riders were actually putting their own skin in the game, so to speak, um, it actually really got people quite interested and excited to sponsor the film. And um, that that got things moving. Yeah, and it feels like yeah. it took off pretty quickly with those early collective films. I think it was Collective Rome and Seasons that were kind of mm -hmm. under that collective banner. What do you think was the key to success? Why did those really, you know, get that much traction straight off the bat? Yeah, we weren't uh, totally sure what to expect of our first film, and we just wanted to do a good job and, and just make something and <laughs> make our money back on it. Um and yeah, the it just seemed like there was room for that style of film in the sport, which um, took things in a, I think like a, maybe a little more soulful, maybe a little more introspective um, angle that didn't really exist in the mountain bike world at that time. Um, yeah. Didn't totally exist really like in in snowboarding or skiing to the same level as well but we had seen it in surfing and and jamie hussein who is my partner in the collective like him and i were both influenced by the jack johnson um, films that had kind of come out just in those years before um there was september sessions shelter um movies like that and they had just like they just had like a real beautiful look to them. And we just remember like long shots, like really long shots of waves and nice light. Um, and it just kind of created a feeling that we really were drawn to. And so that was kind of our vision for the collective too, was 
just to kind of show longer scenes, longer shots, and just try to, I don't know, could just capture that feeling that, that we felt um, in the sport. So, um, yeah, it yeah. definitely worked. It caught people's imagination and, uh, and got people engaged. So what, at what point do we move then from kind of the collective to Ant Hill Films? How did Ant Hill Films become a, a thing? Yeah. Well, after we made the collective Roman and seasons, kind of that whole time, like we always knew that <clears throat> Jamie was going to go back um, and, and get into work with uh, his family. And he was never really like always fully committed to having like a long career in filmmaking. Um but the collective was successful, so we were like, "Sweet, let's do that again." And then the Rome was Rome was even more successful, so we're like, "Okay, I guess we should make this a trilogy." Um, so he kind of ended up getting pulled into it longer than he had originally planned. But um, during that time, um, Darren McCullough and Colin Jones, who are my partners in Antil, along with Ian Dunn, um, those guys were involved in all of the collective films as well. Um, and so in 2008, when Seasons was wrapped up, um, I knew we wanted to do something again and, and keep this momentum going. Um, and that's when we decided, well, let's form uh, a new company and a, a partnership that all of us share in because we're all working on this together as a group. Um, and that's where we came up with Antil. And where, where does the name come from? I've always wondered. Yeah, I do get asked this a lot. We were looking for something that was just kind of unique and stood out. And I was trying to come up with names that like meant something about collaboration and a group working together, you know, and uh, and just something that signified collaboration and, and a group. And um, I was honestly, it was like made a huge list of names and I don't know until just stuck out as something that uh, that clicked and you know answered they're collaborative they, they can as a group they can do way more than they can each do on their own um, and yeah that's where it came from <laughs> nice and yeah. Follow Me was the first film as Ant Hill is that right? yeah exactly yeah that was the, yeah. the first kind of order business with Antil was, I mean, we had not really planned on turning it into what it is now um, because at that time, like, it was still very early days of uh, YouTube. Uh, there wasn't really, there was no Instagram. It wasn't really a time where there was, like, a lot of um, social media videos and web edits and things like that. So it was all about getting another film off the ground. And so... When we formed the company, <clears throat> we had the concept to follow me. We pitched it, and and that was the thing to kind of get off the ground. And um, it was after that film that we slowly started getting um, other projects, like just short form, uh, little commercial projects and things like that. Yeah, um, and yeah. there's that uh, that amazing section in in Follow Me with G. Atherton and Stevie Smith who went on to become pretty intense rivals flatly <laughs> in their careers. And it's awesome just to see the level of competition even then between the two of them in that shoot. It must have been a fun shoot to be part of. What's yeah. it like when you're on a shoot? Can you feel when it's really clicking and when something's working like super well? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely you can feel that when it's coming together. I mean, that shoot in particular, I mean, it was really fun, and but it was hard. Like, we had really bad weather on that trip. Um, we were down there for two weeks, and we were getting snow, rain, wind, um, and we were pretty stressed. Like, by the end of the trip, we only had about three days left, and I was feeling like this is going to be the first time we've ever done a shoot where it's actually not going to work out like we're we don't have anywhere near a segment and it is like this is the one this is the one that's gonna (laughs) come home with nothing and uh and then the weather turned and it all really came together in the last three days um but it did make for a fun trip because even though the weather sucked, our spirits were pretty high and everyone got along so well. So, you know, we were going out to the bar every night and we were just having a great time. But, uh, yeah, it, it came together in just a few short days. Yeah, well, it's definitely yeah. one of my favorite segments. And you, you've had some incredible movies over the years, but one that really stands out from your your collection for me is unreal. Um, there's out of the sort of mm-hmm. part style movies that you've done. Yeah. I wanted to ask a few things about that movie in particular. And the first was that Seminuk section, which is a single take, I think. Yeah. Where he rides this huge line, swaps bikes halfway down with that like acid drop off the cliff. Like, how do you even start putting something like that together? Like, where does the idea come from? Is it from Brandon? How do you find a location? How do you make it, make it work? Like, yeah, it was a big process. That is an idea that we had for years, actually, um, before that. And it wasn't for Brandon at first. Um, I remember we were first talking about it in Kamloops, like just driving down some hills um, on shuttle roads and just like imagining how cool it would be if there was a trail that like ran alongside the road and like we could just do a shot that went on like forever type idea. And uh, we just kind of held that in, in our mind for years until the right opportunity came up. Um, and the concept for Unreal like felt like the right film to, to put this segment in. Um, so then, you know, we knew we wanted to do something with Brandon and he was the perfect rider for that idea when the time came. So um, what happened next is I went down to California and had kind of made a a list of a few ranches and made contact with some ranchers, uh, to just go scout their land and, and essentially rent the land to be able to build that line on it. Um, and then we found that, that piece of property in, in Cambria, uh, just off the coast. And yeah, then once we kind of had the, the property, we had a team of builders down there for three weeks, uh, building that line. And, uh, and then we had to build a road that ran alongside the trail. Um, and so that was actually really challenging. I think that shot nowadays would probably be a little easier to pull off. Um, and you probably just do it with a drone. Yeah. Um, but at the time we did it with, um, with a truck and we had the GSS, um, gimbal like mounted on the roof of the truck. And so it took like four of us to kind of coordinate that shot between the, the driving of the vehicle that like timing it perfectly. We had a bunch of like points we had to hit along the road at the exact 
right second so we were in a good angle for where Brandon would be on the course because um, some of those stunts like if you were too far uphill or too far downhill they wouldn't look good like it would be a, uh-huh. literally a bad angle to film um, any one of those jumps from so the, the timing was critical and it took us days and days and days to work that out so it was I think around the 10th day um, that we finally got like the shot and that take is the only one where he did the whole line. Like that's like it. That's the shot. Yeah. <laughs> so. Incredible. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my favorite segments from any film ever. And I think yeah. the music is often a re- an overlooked part of things, but it, it can really set stuff off. And the mm-hmm. use of that Buffalo Springfield track in that Seminuck section is, is the perfect fit. How, how do you go about music selection? How much effort actually goes into that? Yeah, quite a bit goes into that. Um, well, Darren McCullough, who's one of my partners and he's the lead editor, uh, he's the one that is typically dealing with, with music. Um, and we work with the music coordinator that is constantly sending us music and like giving us insight into what's available. Um, but yeah, we were a bit stuck. Like we didn't know that the one shot was going to be as successful as it was, we were kind of worried about it. We thought maybe like are people going to think this is boring. Like you don't really know like how it's going to land. And we did have other songs and that, and we were a bit like, ah, it's like, maybe this people are just going to think like, this is too drawn out. Um, and then one day, like Darren, just, I think he was looking for music and then he just called me into his office and he said, Hey, like, come check this out. Like, what do you think? And, as soon as we watched it, we were like, whoa, that is, that just clicks. Like, it's the perfect vibe. Um, yeah, and it it ended up being incredibly successful. I, I'm not sure even what the views really are at because it's still going, but it was, you know, it, it was like 70, 80, 90 million, somewhere like really high like years ago. So, um, yeah. Pretty went, rewarding to see work like pay off right because that's a huge mm-hmm. investment of time money effort to make a shot like that so to see it actually click with people must have been really cool yeah it, it definitely was and it's like anything it was a huge risk um doing that you know I, that was another shoot where i felt like man we are way out on the limb here because we had spent so much time and so much money uh on that one shot and it's it's you know when you film a segment normally you're building it in pieces and if a rider gets injured or the weather turns or something works against you you, usually you can salvage something um but with a concept like that it's just all in like if if brandon got hurt if we couldn't complete that shot you would just leave with nothing um so it was definitely definitely a huge gamble yeah and in that film you also seem to uh, make it rain loam. I'm yeah. kind of keen to know how you did that. I've always puzzled over that one. <laughs> yeah, that was um, a kind of a combination of, of two things. Like, yeah, for that, for the ground, like for what we had, like um, on the trails was was uh, peat moss. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's something that just, you know, can you can kind of spread and it just kind of gave that like snow dirt feeling. Um, and then for the, what was actually falling from the sky, we actually, um, went out and got a bunch of fake movie snow 
um, from like a special effects studio in Vancouver. And uh, we had them dye it um, brown just so it had that brown pow look to it. So, uh, and it's all like, it's all, um, it's like a cornstarch. It's all just like biodegradable stuff that just eventually dissolves as soon as it rains. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we, we just kind of figured out some techniques. We were just up on ladders and we were kind of like feeding it out of boxes into um, leaf blowers and the leaf blowers would shoot it up into the sky. And, you know, we just had our frame and uh it just yeah made it made the brown foul so impressive work yeah no messing yeah, it was, around yeah so it was you, tedious I mean, you've uh you, you, took, you mentioned drones and we've, we've been talking about some of the, the, the technology i guess that you've used on the films over the time you've been making films a lot has changed the technology's progressed do you think that's changed the face of mountain bike filmmaking you know with drone usage slow-mo cams better onboard footage like there's a lot of of kind of cool stuff that's enabled different things to to be filmed yeah yeah i mean it's progressed i mean so much over over my career which is it's it's crazy the level that it's gotten to with technology and the amount of like amazing talented filmmakers that are out there um there's so much good content and i think as a sport we have actually a lot of passionate filmmakers um it's crazy like how much really good content actually comes out of this this sport so um yeah i mean it's it's changed a lot i feel like recently you know that it's in some ways it evens the playing field a little bit like everyone has drones everyone has gimbals uh everyone has good you know editing equipment and know what they're doing so uh it's really you can see how it's shifted more towards story um and having like sometimes like a little more foundation to um some stories and stuff behind the imagery mm-hmm. um that being said you know it's nice to have the balance between story and just good old-fashioned just just action um but i feel like the technology these days really just allows you to capture the feeling of the sport and and the motion and the momentum and the, the the quickly traveling through space like i think you really get that feeling more and more now than than ever before yeah i tell yeah i definitely agree like the drone footage is progressing to a level where it feels a lot mm-hmm. more watchable but also yeah. more versatile like it trans it translates the feel of the sport a lot better onto the screen i think than some of the older drone stuff yeah, totally. And I think even with the FPV drones, we're going to see stuff maybe start to, at least this is my own prediction, but maybe just mellow out a little bit more. Like when that f- first came out, I mean, you'd see like a lot of drone pilots really flexing, like like how crazy they could fly and crazy angles and going through stuff. And like sometimes it can be almost like a little too aggressive and it's almost more about like, what the drone pilot can do and less about like enhancing the riding and enhancing the riding is really the goal of the filmmaker in the end you got to kind of remember to get yourself a little out of the way and like it's it's about capturing the rider and the feeling of of cycling at least that's kind of my opinion on it and i think we're going to see some of that just maybe mellow out a little bit where you're not so twisty turny like it can be sometimes a little um, 
yeah, could be a little much, but um, it's pretty amazing. Like you're already starting to, I feel like, see that, like that, that perspective needs to be cinematic and, and fit, you know, from a composition perspective in with the rest of the, the angles that are being used. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, we, it's interesting. Like we we're just starting another film. Um, I can't talk too much about yet because the sponsorship is still all being worked out, but, um, we are embarking on another year and a half long mountain bike film project. Um, and yeah, for the first time ever, you know, we have, uh, earmarked in our budget having a, an FPV drone pilot on every shoot. So that's like a new thing that just wasn't, we've all, we've had drones for years, but not actually like having someone dedicated to that style of flying. Yeah. Interesting. That'd be good to be good to see. How, mm-hmm. how do you think we're doing then? Where are we at with the sort of state of mountain bike filmmaking at the moment? It feels like it's a much more diverse space than it's ever been there's a lot of formats with youtube instagram edits shreddits whatever you want to call them it feels like there probably is a bit less long-form filmmaking going on mm-hmm. um where, where do you think we're at there's a there's a lot of people there's a lot of content it's getting churned out there's some really high quality stuff but where do you see that scene in general yeah i mean i think it just means that the there there is i mean it's like we were saying earlier like there's so much content out there it's so available on every platform and every shape and size that you can think of um but the long form has been um often a struggle when i I talked to the other filmmakers that are also making longer form films like it it can be challenging um to get to get a budget together um so you can work on a on a film for a year or so and and be able to hold on to that footage um and the like the marketplace for selling longer form films is constantly shifting um some some years the streamers are up and they may they may want some content and you might be able to sell a film for a decent buck um and then other years not so much so that part i think makes it a little bit unpredictable as well um but i feel like that's not going to go away and, and that'll keep coming back because like a constant onslaught of like short clips doesn't really have quite the staying power um that that a film will have or even a tv series where you're really like taking the time to like thoughtfully like curate and collect together a body of work and just present it as one whole um yeah that it that just needs to happen every so often just i don't know i just always feel like whether it's our films or anyone else there's a there's something about a moment in time that's like captured and stamped and and it's there you know um it's it's obviously we all know that like the the scroll is endless and something that is like such an amazing piece of content will just just be gone and the next day there's something new. Um, I don't know where it'll go, but I feel like we'll need something to hold on to some of those like pieces of work as well. Cause there's so much good filmmaking out there that lots of people are doing. And like, where is the kind of library that that's going to be held, you know, 
yeah in, true in kind of the annals of like mountain bike history right like it that stuff yeah. needs at home yeah someone needs to curate all the good stuff into a place where we can all look at yeah. it like yeah some kind yeah. of digital museum something like that i don't know like i mean i'm not gonna do it because that that <laughs> seems like a lot of work and but yeah i mean it's it's, it's there's got to be something there where like as we kind of look back on the history of the sport like there'll be things that that happened in big moments and cool segments that were like timeless um and and yeah those need to live somewhere and uh i mean they do it with like the with with people in the way that we have a mountain biking hall of fame yeah so yeah mm, i'd never thought about it like that but you're, you're right yeah. interested to see where that goes yeah. Let, let's let's talk a little bit about anthill films as a a platform i guess because it you know you have a following people mm-hmm. want to see the next anthill project um i feel like for, for you guys maybe anthill started out being something you loved it was fun you enjoyed it and anthill has grown and it's got a bigger following have you felt like a pressure to use that platform for more than just having fun? Like it feels like to some extent your direction has shifted a little bit in, uh, in recent times. Is that something mm-hmm. that you've felt? Yeah. Um, as we've grown as people and as a company, like it's definitely occurred to us and we've had a lot of conversations about like, where should we go and what, what is it that we're doing here and we haven't really felt like like pressure from anyone to say stand for something but it has occurred to us that hey like what are we doing we're our job is to inspire people to ride bikes like clearly we're excited about sharing like mountain biking and cycling in general but specifically mountain biking with the world and like we get excited about um showing the sport to other people and we have this like never-ending desire to do that and that's when we kind of slowly like click that like our job is to inspire people to ride bikes Um, and so that's kind of been something that's been I guess a bit of a north star for us where we say okay well when we're doing new projects or if we're kind of planning the future we're like are are we a positive influence on growing the sport and inspiring people to ride bikes and what are all the benefits of riding a bike and there's health benefits and mental health benefits and uh so many good things that come out of it and so that's just where we've as we've kind of grown older like realized like yeah we need to use this platform to kind of back up the things that we believe in yeah and it, it feels to me like Long Live Chainsaw, the movie about Stevie Smith's life, which is absolutely incredible, by the way. It feels like that was the first movie that went in a in a slightly different direction for you guys. It's much more like a documentary mm-hmm. style than a, a parts kind of movie. Mm-hmm. How was it working on something so different and also so important to mountain biking as a scene and especially mm-hmm. to the Canadian side of things? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a really emotional film to work on. Um, and it was something that, you know, when Stevie passed away, like as filmmakers, you know, we were, I remember already at the memorial, we were like, oh, we have to do a movie about his life. Like we were just trying to think of ways to remember him and to honor him. And, um, but there's no way that 
anyone was really emotionally ready, like at that point or even the years afterwards, it definitely took a couple of years to get somehow like, I don't know, just in the right emotional headspace to, to go in there and, and make a film. Cause you know, there's something that you are attached to, you know, emotionally. And then you, you also need to be very pragmatic about it and actually make a film and draw the story and go through the process of getting everyone involved. And, um, and I've, you know, I've, got to know Stevie's mom when we filmed that season segment back in 2007. So um, I stayed in touch with her about it and it kind of just got to the point where we were like ready to, to get moving on it. Um, and I was just before the pandemic, um, we were starting to get serious about making the film. Um, but we always knew we wanted it to be a not-for-profit project. Um, and so finding the time was actually becoming the challenge because we're busy and we're just, you know, like anyone trying to keep our heads above water. Uh, and so when the pandemic came and we were all on lockdown and everything slowed down, suddenly it seemed like the right opportunity where we're like, actually, you know what, like this is the perfect timing. We can start diving into the CV project and it's the kind of project that could kind of happen remotely because most of it is post-production gathering archival footage. And, mm -hmm. um, so it kind of provided that opportunity for us to actually work on the movie. Yeah. What's the response been like? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's so different than everything we've worked on, you know? So like, I mean, just so many good vibes, I would say like, I mean, everyone, you know, loved Stevie. And uh, and so I think it's just been such a positive film overall. Um, yeah. And, and I think it was, for a lot of people, maybe a, it's a good form of therapy. And just, it's kind of like, I don't, don't want to say like it's, like it's closure because you don't really ever stop thinking about that person and that doesn't really go away but it definitely uh i don't know i just felt like it needed to happen and it felt like we needed to like just gather together like stevie's story because it is a pretty inspiring story and he was an amazing person yeah it's an incredible story and that's available i think for free isn't it on is it on rebel tv yeah yeah it's on rebel tv so um yeah highly recommend people go and watch that if they've uh not seen it yet it's it's a yeah a very special story you guys did a great job in telling that and and that leads us on i guess to your latest project um mm -hmm. again very different i think from anything you've you've done before stepping beyond the world of mountain biking into cycling in general in all mm -hmm. its forms um tell us a bit about where the idea came from and the motivation behind this project because it is it's a big undertaking yeah it's it's a yeah the engine inside is a it's another one of those ideas that we have had for years like close to a decade i would say is is um how long we've been talking about it and it the original idea was much more 
of a visual concept than it, than it is now. And so we just had this desire. We're like, look, we've been filming mountain biking for years. And wouldn't it be cool if we took like everything we've learned filming biking and applied it to different styles of cycling, um, like road cycling. And I mean, gravel wasn't really a thing 10 years ago, but like just seeing like commuting and different, different sides of like how the bicycle is used around the world. Um, but in those early stages, we didn't, we were definitely more focused on like the sport side of thing. Um, and as we developed it, we started to uncover these like amazing stories about how human beings are using the bicycle to improve their lives and improve the world around them. And the deeper we dug, the more we found that like, wow, the bicycle is like this unbelievable tool that is like such a positive influence on the world and it's one of the only machines and one of our only inventions that you could actually say is like very hard to find negatives like it is positive and helps people's lives no matter how they use it around the world whether it's recreation whether it's transportation um it it's so diverse it exists everywhere and one thing that always like struck us as crazy is that there's no one had really there's no film that exists that that really shows how people are using the bicycle all over the world um so that's yeah it was kind of a big idea um that's probably one of the biggest challenges with the film is you know we've when we started to unpack it like the, the kind of world of cycling um it's way too big like it's it's like way too big so you know there's like in a way like the film is like 99 percent of it is like of ideas and things you talked about is on the cutting room floor because you really have to like boil it down to like what can we tell in, in an hour and a half long documentary um, and so that's where we settled on six characters, uh, and how, and we tell the personal story of each person and how they're using the bicycle in their own way to, to shape their lives and, and the world around them. How did you find those six characters? Cause then none of them mm -hmm. are like big names. I'd not come across any of them before I was lucky enough to see an early cut of the film. Yeah. Like how do you source these people that have these incredible stories, but probably fly to some extent under the radar? Yeah. Well, another like kind of perfect little partnership that emerged uh, coming out of this was actually back in 2017 um, when we were first trying to get this film off the ground. Um, we knew we wanted to work with a writer. And so we reached out to, to Mitch Scott um, and, for those that don't know Mitch, he's been a writer in our sport for 20 plus years. Um, and so we reached out to him. He's based in Nelson, BC, um, about this concept and seeing if he'd want to be involved. And he was like, holy shit, guys, like I've been thinking the exact same thing and check out this deck that like I've been sitting on for years. And like he flipped us his deck and it was very similar to what we were thinking and like no it was actually pretty crazy <laughs> so he, i was like well this is perfect you're you have the same idea and he already had the name the engine inside which is i think just a perfect name for um for the film 
And so we started working on researching characters and we just really just dug deep, made a big spreadsheet, like probably found like 40 or 50 people that um, had interesting stories. Um, but it was just purely through research. And I mean, any one of those people, they all had amazing stories, but we just started to really boil down like, um, how they were using the bicycle, what community they represented. Um, it was super important for us to have like global diversity, uh, in this film Mm -hmm. as much as you can have with just a few characters. Um, but I mean, the bike is in every country in the world. So, um, yeah, trying to capture that diversity was like definitely important. But like, just to answer that question, like, yeah, I mean, where we found the characters is just research, like just straight up research, talking to people, like Google searching different communities, like, yeah. Impressive. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's insane. The stories of, of everyone involved in the movie are, yeah mind-blowing and it's super powerful to watch what what are your hopes for the film because it it feels like this has the ability to do things that nothing you guys have ever made before has done right it goes further yeah yeah it's a i mean it's a big step for us um i would say coming from an action background to making a feature-length documentary about very personal stories so um i mean our hope is that it well, that it inspires cyclists, um, that the cycling community as a whole and everyone from road cyclists to commuters to mountain bikers to adventure athletes, anyone that's got a connection to a bicycle, we hope they watch the movie and, and appreciate the bicycle in a, in a new way and maybe in a deeper level that they maybe haven't thought of. Um, and definitely a big goal is to is to break outside of the of the cycling space and and kind of get some mainstream attention um and that's always been the goal for anything you know like us as cyclists like we we know we love to watch our own content and we have this amazing subculture where we're all like stoking each other out but um i think the real uh home run would be getting people that aren't necessarily passionate about bicycles to realize just how amazing this thing is and maybe understand a little bit why we're also kind of nuts about bikes is like yeah, they are absolutely mind-blowingly amazing so um yeah that's the big goal so we've this has been the hardest film we've made i mean our post-production process has been close to a year now um we've done so many revisions we've had so much input from people from all walks of life and and different sides of filmmaking and um i mean we've got it now refined to a point where we're we're pretty happy with it um you just gotta eventually be done with it and you gotta just release it (laughs) keep changing it forever yeah yeah, how important is distribution in all of this thing? Because, like you say, mm-hmm. you've got this audience of mountain bikers who'd be like, "Oh, a new anthill film, I'm going to go watch it." Mm-hmm. But you want this to get to way more people than that 
that niche within a niche kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you go about getting it in front of more people? I, the, I mean, the short answer to that is like, it's simply just the, the, the content of the film itself and distributors looking at it and seeing that they think there's a wide audience for this and that it'll appeal to, to mainstream society. Um, so, I mean, our strategy will be to first do a very good job of releasing it inside the world of cycling using all the cycling clubs um, to help put on premieres, to have the cycling media, you know, hopefully write positive articles and just spread the word. And if we can get a groundswell going behind the film from the world of cycling, um, hopefully that kind of gets enough attention um, and hopefully distributors see enough momentum there that they decide that this is something that they want to uh, roll the dice on and, and take on. Um, what, but it's, what's it's the, tough. What's the dream yeah. then? Is it like to get it on something like a big streaming service like Netflix? Is that the ultimate yeah. end game? Or, yeah, yeah, that would be the, the largest audience that uh, the film could get. So when we release it, we're, we do uh, about a month or so of, of premieres. Um, we definitely will be submitting it to film festivals um, and film festivals can of course give it a lot of credibility and hopefully get all those nice laurels that you see on successful films. Um, but uh, then it'll be available for, for download. Um, but downloading obviously these days is not very common. Only the most passionate people that want to really own something like would ever download it um and so yeah getting it on a big streaming platform and having it be well placed and like really embraced by that that platform um is really the big the big goal for the widest possible audience yeah so if people are listening mm -hmm. to this and they they want to see the film and i highly recommend they do it's uh it's a really powerful piece of filmmaking and uh definitely got me thinking about bikes in a totally different way and even more stoked that I'm involved in it in the way that I am. Like mm -hmm. how, where, where do they look? Is it, do they go to the anthill website? Like what's the, the best thing for them to do? Yeah. Yeah. The anthill website, it's anthillfilms.com or uh, just going on to any one of our social channels. Um, we're going to be um, communicating about it quite a bit. Um, and then the film's partners, which is pond.bike, shimano and people for bikes um they'll all be speaking about it quite a bit um about where you can watch it but as we're recording this now we're still in the process of like fine-tuning like where exactly it'll it'll be this summer um but yeah for sure we're going to be <laughs> uh talking about it quite a bit on our social channels uh for the coming Excellent. months yeah yeah. Cool. And I'll make, yeah, I'll make sure I share some stuff on my socials as well when it's out there and available for people for premieres mm -hmm. or download or whatever that happens to be. Nice mm -hmm. one, man. Well, we should start uh, wrapping up. We're getting close to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. I guess we, we should uh, not lose this opportunity to have someone like yourself on and not ask, what advice would you give to people who want to get into mountain bike filmmaking? It's a very mm -hmm. different um, space to when you got into it, but what, what advice would you give people? Yeah, well... I mean, the nice thing nowadays, I think it's a lot easier to get into in some ways. Um, granted, there's a lot of people that want the same thing, but 
I mean, now you can start to make good videos even just with your phone. So, um, but I would say probably one of the biggest things is is just getting out there and do and doing it, making little edits and and just filming your friends and um, and just kind of continuing to move forward with it. Uh, I think one of the things that like is the difference between people that might have a career in something and might not is is just sticking with it. Like if I look back at my career, I'm like, I don't know if I really did anything that special. It's I just kept doing the same thing for years and years and years. And eventually you're like, okay, this is a career now. Um, and that's probably the biggest advice I would say. It's just like, just whether it's filmmaking or anything else, like just pick a direction and just relentlessly move forward in that direction. And eventually you'll find yourself somewhere different than when you started. Yeah. Sound advice. So if you were going to shoot another parts-based film, mm -hmm. who would you want to shoot with from that modern crop of riders and why, why, like who excites you? Oh, that's like probably the like hardest question, especially as we're getting close to wrapping up. Mainly because there's so many talented riders out there. Um, yeah. And, you know, the more you kind of look at like riders and their backgrounds and their stories and what their desires are, you're like, man, they like, there's, you know, the, like dozens of riders that, uh, are worthy of like being in a film and that's probably the hardest decision is like in the end is like boiling down like okay who are we going to work with and and but i mean it's really comes down to the person's attitude and willingness to like collaborate and be creative and put in the time and put in the work to, to create something special um it it definitely at kind of the highest level it takes serious amount of patience and time and dedication from the rider to to make something that stands out um so i would say that's like a general answer like those are like the riders that we we want to work with um i mean luckily mountain biking is like it's such a open and positive and inclusive sport that like most of the riders that i've ever met are amazing people and um so yeah stuff yeah yeah i'd, I'd echo <laughs> yeah. that yeah generally everyone is incredible and always willing to get stuck in which is is really cool all right yeah. man, we're going to wrap up with our final four questions that we ask everyone the okay. first of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds or 250 canadian dollars uh to spend to improve their performance on a bike or have more fun on the bike what would you recommend they go and spend it on like just on products on their bike it could be a product um, it could be a service it could be it could be anything really anything you can spend money on oh man uh well that, that's a tricky one because bikes are pretty expensive that doesn't go that yeah. far if you're talking about uh improvement but it would probably be uh um Oh, as I think about how wet the trails are right now, is making sure you have good, good tires, fresh tires go a long way. Um, add in a fresh tune. Yeah, sounds good. All right, second one. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? 
Um, probably to spend a little more time on now looking at my career, I'm like, ah, oh, there's, there's probably some paying more attention to uh, education in those early years probably would have been a good thing, you know? Kind of had to like do it the hard way slowly over time, having not done very good in school. <laughs> yeah, my son is 16, so I probably the advice okay. I would give him, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, I love it. Yeah. All right, third one. If you could have a coaching session from anyone past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn? And this would normally be like a riding thing, but it doesn't have to be. It could be someone from the filmmaking world mm -hmm. or, or any world. And who would it be? Like a coaching session from someone. Yeah. What, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Oh, man. Really ending on some challenging questions here. That like requires some that. deep thought. Like what, yeah, what filmmaker would you because there's quite a few out there uh, you can pick a couple yeah well he's no longer around but you know bruce brown who made the endless summer like that movie influenced me when i was younger even though it was like an old movie when i was young but um you know that's someone who like had a, a vision to basically invent the genre that we're that we're in right now yeah. um yeah i would say right. that yeah nice we'll take that one and then the last one what do you do every day that you feel benefits you um well one thing i make sure i do every day is exercise whether it's it's whether it's going to the gym or going for a bike ride um that has to happen every day. Um, doesn't always actually when we're filming and on the road, but um, I don't know. That's one off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a good effort. Yeah. Definitely helps you feel like you're part of the day when you uh, get mm -hmm. something good done like that. Nice yeah. one. Well, it's been yeah. really interesting chatting. I'm super excited to see how the new film goes and uh, how it's received. It's an incredible watch. Um, thank you for the work and hard um yeah all the hard work that you put into that it's hopefully gonna get a lot of people thinking about the importance of bikes within the world um if people want to mm -hmm. find out more just remind them where they should be looking uh they could just look at uh our website antilfilms.com or uh at on our until films um instagram is probably the best place where we're going to be updating all the time uh latest information about the film so Perfect. Yeah. I will yeah. uh, stick some links in the show notes to all of that so people can find it nice and easily. But yeah, thanks, Darcy. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to seeing what comes next from Anthill. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for this episode with Darcy. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to tune in next week where hopefully I'll be able to give you the distribution details for their new film, The Engine Inside. A big thank you to Seven Mesh for supporting this episode. Don't forget you can get 20% off all of Seven Mesh's incredible clothing, including their brand new air mat range, by using the code 7MeshXDowntime20. That's the number 7 followed by MeshXDowntime, then the number 20, all lowercase with no spaces. That's 7MeshXDowntime20 over at 7mesh.com. Seven Mesh ship globally, and that code is valid until the end of January 2024. 
Don't forget, if you want to help support the podcast, then the best way to do that is by heading over to patreon.com forward slash downtime podcast and setting up a donation. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We've also got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Make sure you're following the podcast by hitting that button in your podcast app now or by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash follow. You can also get a little bit of extra downtime by signing up to our newsletter at downtimepodcast.com forward slash newsletter. That's it for today. We're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs) 